Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, February 7th, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. Well, welcome to the fifth and final week in our sermon series on the gift of forgiveness. And we've been journeying together on this topic for about a month now, and I've, I've heard a lot of wonderful comments about how many of you uh, have felt that this series has been helpful in your own uh, faith and in your own relationship life, and that's so good to hear. But I do want to offer a word of caution. Please do not begin to take on this perspective. I asked God for a bike, but I know that God doesn't work that way, so I stole a bike and asked for forgiveness. (laughs) Yeah, not a good way to relate to God, even though forgiveness does abound. Just don't abuse that opportunity, right? Anthony DeMello, in his wonderful book on meditations uh, called Taking Flight, tells a story about an old woman from a village in the country, and it was said that she began having these divine apparitions, right? She would, she would hear from God in powerful ways. Well, the local priest was skeptical to say the least. He demanded proof that she was indeed communicating with the Almighty. So he said to her, the next time God appears to you, ask him to tell you my sins. Those are only known to him. That should be evidence enough for me, whether you're really talking to God. Well, the woman returned a month later, and the priest asked her if God had showed up in the last 30 days. He had, she said. And what did he say, he asked. She replied, he said to tell you, uh, I've already forgotten your sins. DeMello finishes his story with this question. Could it be that all of the horrible things you've done have been forgiven by everyone except you? Wow. Can anyone else relate? I've saved what could be, for many of us, the most difficult part of the forgiveness process for last. Forgiving ourselves. That's precisely why Anthony DeMello's question is so poignant. Could it be that all of the horrible things you've done have been forgiven by everyone except you? Today we'll be wrestling with what it means to forgive ourselves. And as I've mentioned throughout the series, two authors have been especially helpful to me in my study and preparation, Lewis Smedes and R.T. Kendall. And this week, a lot of my notes come from Kendall's book, How to Forgive Ourselves Totally. So how many of us at one point or another in our lives have known that God's forgiveness is available, but we've really struggled with being able to forgive ourselves? Whether it's a time in our past when we let someone else down or We gave up too soon on some endeavor. It could have been a failing in business or dropping out of school. Maybe we injured ourselves through carelessness or wasted years with the wrong company, gave advice that was completely wrong, or we lied to our best friend. Perhaps we've fallen into sexual sin or feel plagued by having had an abortion. We may have been unfaithful in our marriage or sentenced to prison for a crime We have abused or neglected our children or ruined another person's career. We may have lost money through a lack of wisdom or struggled with addictions. 
Maybe we failed to respond to God's call upon our lives, or we waited too long to reconcile with another. The list could go on and on because all of us have been hurt by and have hurt others. And along the way, we've all let someone else down or let ourselves down, and we have to ask in this process, have we been able to forgive ourselves? R.T. Kendall says, truly forgiving ourselves is accepting God's forgiveness of all of our past sins and failures so completely that we equally let ourselves off the hook for our past as God himself has already done. Now, we begin with the understanding that nothing, there is nothing that cannot be forgiven by God. If we humbly repent and we ask for forgiveness, nothing is beyond God's grace and mercy. Once forgiven, the Bible says God has promised never to condemn us. Tell your priest I've forgotten his sins, the woman said. So if God, the author and creator of all life, the supreme being in the universe, if God can forgive us, then who are we to deny ourselves that same forgiveness? Who are we to judge and condemn what God has already wiped clean? Yeah, but you you don't know what I've done, Pastor Jim. I, I deserve to be guilty. It would be wrong for me to feel good about my past. What I did was bad, and I deserve some kind of punishment. And that very well may be true. In fact, many of us could probably say the same thing. But that's what's so amazing about God's love and grace and forgiveness is that we never deserve it. That's why it's called grace. It's a a gift, an extravagant love that's poured out over and over and over to us. Forgiving ourselves is not a denial of our sinful past, nor is it refusing to look at the bad things we've done. It means we have to stop punishing ourselves with guilt over something that God has already forgiven. Now, of course, that takes for granted that we've asked for forgiveness from the Lord. If that's not the case, then that should be our first item of business, to fall on our knees and to do that. And remember, the Bible says that God will forgive anything that we take to him. When we forgive ourselves as God desires us to, we bring in inner peace, and we have freedom from the bondage of guilt, and we're able to love others more, to have a better mental, emotional, and spiritual health. We're better able to fulfill all that God has in store for us and how God wants to use us in the world. One of the most helpful insights that Dr. Kendall put forth in his book was the difference between true guilt and false guilt. A 13-year-old Girl Scout, when asked how she sold 11,200 boxes of cookies, says, you have to look people in the eye and make them feel guilty. (laughs) Well, that's a great example of false guilt. That's otherwise known as pseudo-guilt. False guilt is a sense of shame in our hearts that God did not put there. For example, eating in an expensive restaurant and feeling guilty over spending so much money. Feeling guilty about not doing housework at the end of the day when instead you just want to relax and watch a movie or work on a craft or a hobby. Feeling guilty having bought a new exercise machine but never gotten around to actually using it. Now, false guilt is still guilt that is real and painful, but it's not from God. Right? It's not from God. And, and, and it, maybe not a single bit of sin was involved in this kind of guilt. But it can still be quite torturous. 
A man backs out of his garage and doesn't see his two-year-old son in the driveway, runs over the child who dies within minutes. The father will blame himself forever, but he didn't mean to do it. It was not a sin, but that's pseudo-guilt. A lady puts the brakes on her car too late and skids into another lane and has a head-on collision, and four people die in the other car from the accident. And she will be found guilty of careless driving in court, but she didn't mean to hurt anyone. Neither did she sin against God. Pseudo-guilt will plague her from then on. A young man is ordered to shoot and kill in a time of war. He cannot get over the guilt of taking other people's lives. Pseudo-guilt. A young lady is raped shortly after getting off a bus at night, and she blames herself that she was not more watchful. Pseudo-guilt. A nurse was late in arriving at home, uh, at a home where she was to give the patient an injection that could have saved his life, but the patient died moments before she arrived. The nurse is riddled with guilt for years. Pseudo-guilt. Now, none of these examples are offenses towards God. No sin was involved, though these people understandably experienced tremendous guilt. But they're all examples of false guilt, no matter how real and horrible it's felt. I wonder if some of you might be feeling some false guilt from your past. On the other side, we have true guilt. This is a valid sense of shame for having sinned against God. And here's the key. We have not yet accepted God's forgiveness. We feel this guilt when we're actually guilty of something. God holds us responsible for our sins. Much of the time, our conscience reminds us when we're out of step with God's design. And the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and convicts us. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So whenever we say or do something that's out of line with what God intends for us, we're reminded of this. The key to understanding and experiencing true guilt is having a good relationship with God. Hebrews 12.6 reminds us that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He chastises every child whom he accepts. When you feel true guilt, instead of getting upset or repressing it or ignoring it, rejoice because you're loved by God and God wants you to change. You have a chance to make a new start in your life. But God doesn't intend for us to experience true guilt for long. Once we feel it, we should confess it so that God can forgive it. And then we accept that forgiveness and we move on. Whether it's due to true guilt or false guilt, when we fail to forgive ourselves, part of us blames another part of ourselves and we feel split inside. And Lewis Mead says it's like we're ripped apart inside and forgiving ourselves is the only way to heal that split. Simon Peter is a great help to us when it comes to the subject of forgiving ourselves. He was a fisherman when Jesus first called him to be a disciple. And early on, Jesus gave Peter the nickname of The Rock, way before Dwayne Johnson came into the world. And Jesus promised him that one day I will build my church upon you, Peter, upon The Rock. How amazing must that have felt for Peter? Kind of like, have you seen these t-shirts that say, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite? Yeah. Now, 
I don't know if Jesus, if Peter was Jesus's favorite or not, but I know Jesus loved hanging out with Peter. In fact, Peter is one of the inner core of disciples that Jesus always took with him on special events, like when he went up on the mountain of transfiguration or, or in the garden of Gethsemane to pray on the night in which he was arrested. And maybe it was because Peter always spoke his mind. One day when Jesus was asking the disciples, what's the word on the street about me? Who do others say that I am? And the disciples start saying, oh man, all kinds of prophets. Some say you might be Elijah or John the Baptist come back from the dead. He said, yeah, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter was the first one to speak up. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus knew that Peter got it. He understood But then another day, not long afterwards, when Jesus was trying to teach the disciples about his upcoming arrest and death and resurrection, Peter actually rebukes Jesus. He didn't think that Jesus' plan of allowing himself to get killed was very good. May it never happen, Lord, he said. And so then Jesus has to rebuke Peter's rebuke of him, reminding Peter to seek things of God. It's not what makes you comfortable that you need to be focusing on, Peter. It's what God wants to do in your life and in the world. When Jesus was gathered in that upper room for the last supper, he told the disciples again what he was about to face. And he knew, he knew that all of them would abandon him. Peter, though, speaks up. I don't know about these other guys, but I can promise you, Jesus, you and me are tight. I will never leave you. And Jesus says, well, actually, tonight you'll deny me three times. In 2004, Mel Gibson made an incredible movie called The Passion of the Christ. It's an extremely graphic retelling of the crucifixion of Jesus. And the entire movie was filmed uh, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. In the scene we're about to watch, Jesus has already been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying with Peter, James, and John. And Peter is followed at a distance, and now he's watching uh, among the crowds at the high priest's residence. Jesus is in the hands of the Jewish leaders. They're not treating him very well. Let me warn you, what you're about to see might be disturbing, but it all follows Scripture. Let's watch how Peter's evening plays out. So here he was, one of Jesus' closest friends. He had spent the last three years of his life walking and talking with Jesus, following him everywhere. And Peter, after having promised to stick with Jesus no matter what any of the other disciples did, the same Peter denies that he even knows who he is. Can you imagine the pain, the guilt that Peter was feeling in his heart from that night on and how it must have haunted him every day? On Easter morning, the gospel writers tell us that some women went to the tomb and they found it empty, but... The angels gave the women a message, a message from Jesus, a message today back to Peter and to the disciples, but they mentioned Peter specifically by name. Why? I think it's because Jesus knew that Peter would still be beating himself up over what had happened a few days before. In the Gospel of John, Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, but before he ascends to be with Jesus or with God in heaven, he meets the disciples one more time down by the lakeshore. Peter knew that he'd blown his chance to be a disciple. That door had been closed. He's going to go back to the only thing he knows how to do, and that's fish. 
Peter and company had been fishing all night and they had caught nothing. And Jesus on the shore shouts out a little bit of advice and suddenly they catch boatloads full. And Peter realizes it's Jesus and in his haste he jumps into the water, he swims back to shore. Doesn't he want to wait for the boat to row back? And when he gets there, Jesus is sitting around the fire cooking bread and fish. And when the other disciples make it back, they gather around the fire and Jesus serves them breakfast. It was right after eating breakfast that Jesus turns and asks Peter this question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He had already gone back to his former life of fishing, but now here's Jesus inviting him instead back into a relationship as a disciple. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. I've got a job. There's still work for you to do. And Peter affirms his love for the Savior, but Jesus isn't done. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Peter's probably thinking Jesus must not have heard him the first time he asked. So he raised, yes, I love you, Lord, yes, we're good. And still Jesus isn't done. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter felt hurt because Jesus said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I love how honest the writer here of John is about Peter's feelings. He's hurt that Jesus keeps asking him the same question. But I don't think it was a random choice that Jesus asked him three times. Going back to his denial, I think this is a way of Jesus telling Peter, you've been forgiven for every time you denied me. I have a new role for you, a new task, an opportunity for you to carry out your mission and ministry as a disciple. Jesus was the one who gave Peter the nickname of the rock. And it wasn't any rock. It was the rock on which he said, I will build my church. It's going to do you no good, Peter, to wallow in your guilt and feel depressed about the way you let me down in my hour of need. Instead, Jesus made sure that Peter knew he was forgiven. Three times, he was invited back into relationship with him. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter was forgiven by Jesus, period. There was no doubt about it right there that morning. Now, all he had to do was forgive himself. The Bible doesn't say if he forgave himself or not, but the next time we hear from Peter is in the book of Acts. The disciples have uh, come out of hiding to start sharing the good news about Jesus with the world, and guess who the very first preacher is? Peter. That's right. He preaches a 27-verse sermon, and it brings 3,000 people to the altar to give their life to the Lord. And at the very end of the sermon... Peter says this, Acts 2, 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. 3,000 people gave their hearts to the Lord that afternoon, all because of Peter. Well, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a lot to do with it. 
But Peter, who had denied knowing him just a few weeks before, now he was able to address all those who were far away and invite them to have their sins be forgiven. And he could preach that because he had been there himself. He had been about as far away from Jesus as possible after that triple denial. And is there any doubt at this time in the story that Peter had come to forgive himself? How else could God have used him that day and many days after to do such amazing things? Friends, when we are forgiven and we, when we in turn forgive ourselves, then God is able to use us for our full potential. What a blessing. The Apostle Paul wrote to uh, the, the church in Rome, that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Everyone has been hurt in the past. And the series has reminded us not to let what someone else did to us so long ago continue to have a hold on our lives. We have to be able to forgive. But at the same time, we all have moments from our past that we are not proud of. Times we've let ourselves, others, and God down times of sin and brokenness. But the Bible testifies to the fact that if we bring that before the Lord, all can be forgiven. And if God can forgive any sin that we've committed, then who are we to refuse to accept what God has already graciously given? Thanks be to God for the opportunity to be set free. May we live into that freedom in Christ. And all God's people said... Amen.